This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which invests in educators and lifts up the Kansas City region and is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. With hashtag MeToo still prominent, we ask our teachers how the ongoing conversation about sexual harassment and abuse is affecting how they interact with girls and boys. Also, what do you do when a white student says a racist thing in class? The answers aren't as cut and dry as you might think. Plus, the Betsy breakdown is back, and let me tell you, it's a doozy. We'll end with kids these days, as always, on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. And I should say, this is a special group of teachers. When I introduce them, you'll maybe understand why. Maddie Burke-Kemper, what do you teach? I teach fifth grade. (laughs) Rebecca McIntosh, what do you teach? I teach students at an alternative school. And Bakari Uku'u, what do you do in education? Middle school vice principal. And why are you guys a special group? <laughs> can, can, do you figure the it out? The back together, the original <laughs> We're crew. We're the pilot. <laughs> We're the pros. You are the original <laughs> group. The timers. Going all the way back to episode one. You're the first group. You're the pioneers. All of them uh, are educators at public schools uh, in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. Uh, we want to start this episode with a discussion about something that uh, it's maybe at first glance not directly tied to education, but has been such a prominent national conversation and news story for several weeks now. We feel we can no longer ignore it, so we're going to try to put it into the context of teaching and learning, and that is the ongoing talk about sexual harassment and assault sparked by hashtag MeToo. To review quickly, though it's likely you know the basic outlines of this, it all began with the furor over a still-cascading stream of allegations of sexual harassment and assault against Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein. After these allegations came to light, actress Alyssa Milano encouraged women to share their stories of being harassed or assaulted with the hashtag MeToo, and within 24 hours of that call going out, that hashtag had been used half a million times on Twitter, nearly 5 million times on Facebook, and since then it's just kept growing. As Sophie Gilbert puts it in The Atlantic, the Me Too movement shows that in industries across the world, from media to music to modeling to academia, women have encountered their own Weinsteins. And prominent and powerful men from Weinstein to acclaimed political journalist Mark Halperin to celebrity chef John Besh have faced allegations of harassment, assault, lascivious and inappropriate behavior. Several women even have come out and said former President George H.W. Bush, who has been confined to a wheelchair for the past five years, has groped them and made inappropriate jokes while they took pictures with him. Hashtag MeToo has also spawned another hashtag, I have, that is men sharing their stories or experiences of being knowledgeable or complicit with sexual assault and harassment. The Me Too hashtag has likely blown up on your social media feeds as it's blown up on ours and the conversations happening on cable news and the stories featured on newspapers' front pages have certainly created what many consider a long overdue cultural moment and conversation. But does any of this impact kids and classrooms? Susanna Welford, for one, thinks it should. She is founder of the nonprofit Running Start, which tries to get women involved in politics. And she wrote an op-ed for U.S. News & World Report recently that said, for all Me Too has done, giving women voice and holding powerful sexual abusers and bullies to account, it may mean nothing for the future of schools don't play a role now. To quote her, she says, 
After the buzz around the topic runs its course, as it always does, we need a plan to make sure the next generation of young women doesn't grow up with Me Too stories, too. She goes on to say, sex education in America is woefully inadequate. Less than half of states required, and the students that do get it often don't get taught about consent. Instead, research shows many teens get educated about sex from pornography. As Welford writes, that terrifies me. The balance of power in porn is all wrong, and informed consent and real intimacy are absent. So we've actually talked about these topics before on No Wrong Answers, Consent, and Sex Education. Last season, in fact, episode five, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Maddie, in fact, was involved in that conversation. Uh, But I wanted to pick these themes back up in light of Me Too and see if our teachers had anything more or new to say about it. So I'll start with this question. Has this Me Too movement and the the conversation that's been in the news and it's probably been on your mind personally, has it made you reassess your teaching in any way um, or how you approach um, the classroom? I can jump on that. It It has a little bit for me in the sense of what do I define as sexual harassment and what do I define as serious or as immature? Specifically, can you give me an example of something that you know maybe a month or two ago you you might not have thought twice about or, or might not have scrutinized um, with as much force as maybe you're you're thinking now? Mm-hmm. In the context of my classroom, there's a female student that I've taught who one particular day she had to go to the nurse and um, switch out the pair of pants that she was wearing just for like a reason as simple as like there was a rip in it that she hadn't seen something very like universal and her guardian wasn't able to bring another pair of pants for her to wear so she had to wear a pair from the clinic and that pair happened to be um, just like a little bit baggier and she was really really um, disruptive in in the sense of she would not come back into the classroom you know, like I'm trying to teach and she's standing outside my door and she's crying and she's saying, I can't come in, I can't come in, I can't come in because these three boys are going to make fun of me. And I think maybe a year ago, maybe even two years ago, I would have been more frustrated with her than I was when it happened. You know, when that happens, you kind of have a choice where you're like, well, I've never seen those boys do anything explicit to you. I've never seen those boys do anything explicit to another female student. But, you know, so you're kind of tempted to be like, stop crying, get it together, come in the room. Like, we've got to learn math. Stop crying, come in the room, sit down. Like, it's going to be okay. The bigger a deal you make out of it, the more attention you're going to get. All those thoughts were kind of going through my head, and I realized, like, she's really physically uncomfortable. And there must be a reason for that. Like, I, I kind of hope that society starts thinking, Stop being a nuisance. No one's bothering you. It's like the jeans are just a little bit baggy today. Get over it. And that we start leaning more towards there's a reason why you won't come into the classroom. Like if there's a a human that's so uncomfortable that they can't enter a classroom, something is happening, Mm. you know. Uh, Rebecca, Vicari, that that anecdote, uh, Maddie's experiences resonate with you? I think it does when you look at it through the lens of adults not being tuned in to what the actual conversation is. I know I have my perception of what's going on. I think I could talk with colleagues about what we think is going on in our facility, what we think we have a handle on, but I'm sure that's completely off base. And I think this particular time, as the Me Too trend passes through, 
Um, I think that has been probably what's on my mind. Maybe I don't have. Maybe we don't know. You know, have we surveyed? Have we had this conversation with students? We think we know. We have a perception of what the mood is or what what the kids are talking about. And you're saying this this kind of national conversation is at least uh, pushing you to to think maybe we should. For me, it has. Mm. For me, it has. The Susanna Welford's point uh, she made in the op-ed for U.S. News and World Report. Do you do you feel an increased sense of responsibility that you know the that kind of next generation needs to be? Um, educated in a different way or taught taught different things in order to uh, avoid having a Me Too again in the future? The frustration I have with that is that, again, we're expecting so much of our teachers and our mm-hmm. educators that we have not adequately been prepared for. Right. Um, in the same way that parents have not been trained to have these conversations, many teachers have not been trained. Um, and this is the first time that teachers are addressing their own biases and having to do this introspection and, and really understanding um, these issues in a more global scale. And so I think that there has to be some intentionality around the training and professional development, the education that we're providing to um, our instructors who we're expecting to just be able to have these conversations readily. And I don't think that's fair to just assume that um, teachers are able or should be the ones having these conversations. I think that, again, that's just something additional that we're putting on teachers' plates, on educators' plates, um, without actually giving them the due um prerequisites in education to actually do that effectively. Maddie, what are you thinking? Um, I mean, I I agree with everything they've said so far. I think what's been on my mind the most it has been what actual repercussions are there for the groups of people doing the harassment. And as a female, I just don't I just don't really see a whole lot of repercussions for males specifically who do harass and then and then what? you know, like what's actually going to happen afterwards, especially in nuanced situations like the anecdote from my class where I'm like, she has no proof. I've never seen it. She's never reported it before. She was just so emotionally upset that she couldn't, my student couldn't go into the classroom at that moment. Yeah, so what did, so what what did you happens? do? What did you do in that moment? As, an, as a teacher, honestly, I didn't know because I'm like, if I don't, if you haven't reported it to me and, and all that I have is just you are upset. She has this, fe- I can see that she's upset. And I'm like, well, I asked her, well, why do you feel like this? And she couldn't, she didn't answer me with anything. She, she didn't feel comfortable enough giving me a, well, yesterday at the lunch table, so-and-so made a sexual comment and now I feel uncomfortable. She just kept repeating, I just can't go in. I just can't go in. I just know that this is going to happen. I just know that they're going to look at me. I just know that they're going to say something. I said, I will watch. So I stood by her for the rest of the day. I kind of like shielded her body from my other students in line. I did everything I could to try and make her feel comfortable. But that that's the hard part, because on one hand, I want to I want to stand up for her. But on the other hand, I can't I can't just pull people from their instructional minutes that they also have a right to when there's – what situation do I have? I'm like, you're just – Yeah. You and know, I so goes, I, I'm going to interrupt if you don't mind. I think yeah, it goes go directly ahead. back to Bakari's point about systemically, structurally, what do we have in place to right. support the adults in our schools? Mm-hmm. So what's the plan? Of how, does this, how does the investigation occur? 
Who's the backup? Who can that student go talk to? Is it appropriate to pull so them during math or do you have to when, wait until recess? So you know, what, like, you what know. as a group do we agree is going to be our response? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what what is the next step? You know, and, and, and that's a whole other area of conversation is what what do we as adults do and need to do better under Title IX, under mm-hmm. when things mm-hmm. are reported, under safe schools? I mean, we bungle that more frequently than we should. Right. And I think what I'm hearing is a little bit like, being on the admin side of that and having to be the one sure. to do those reports and facilitate the conversations, I think that part of that is we do have to educate when there are policies in place for teachers to know that in that moment I would have suggested you send her to the counselor so that mm-hmm. she can actually have that conversation and maybe be able to identify some students or, or um, name a situation that has mm-hmm. made her feel so uncomfortable so we can actually get to the root of it um, versus still coaxing, coaxing her to get to the classroom and sitting in the space where she feels uncomfortable. So I think really getting to a place where as a adults, we know what options we have available to help our students more and to be more successful. Um, but again, it goes back to the education piece. Like we need to know what's what our resources are, what the, proce- the processes and the policies are so we can be um, a best advocate for our right. students in those moments. Uh, we, so I guess final question for this segment, I guess going forward, it kind of mirrors what I asked at the very beginning, but um, now that Me Too has happened and continues to happen, I guess practically going forward, how do you see your your job and your work and your mindsets changing um, in school, if at all? I think for me it's moving forward, situations that I might have previously viewed as nuanced, not viewing them as nuanced anymore. For that one student who I had that experience with in the future, like instead of my immediate reaction going, oh, is she telling me the truth or uh, is is this an overreaction to something? I'm not going to try and superimpose all of my own thoughts onto how you're feeling right now. Like you told me that you feel physically uncomfortable. You do. Like I'm going to treat it as such. It's not nuanced. It's harassment. To push you know? a little bit. I mean, does that open it up to the possibility that – of lying. Uh, of lying or of students getting blamed for maybe something they didn't and do. That, I mean, that's why I didn't pull those, the boys out because I was like, I didn't see it. I didn't hear it. You've never reported anything like this before. And I see you frequently playing with them. But again, like, is it my job to, is that my job to deduce whether or not you are or are not legitimately being harassed? Mm-hmm. And I, is it like, I, well, I mean, it's in a, I would say I yes. I don't know. I would say yes, and I think to, to the extent in that moment, your job is to get her to the resources who can follow up with her. And so I think, right. again, it's not a matter of you saying, I think anytime a student's reporting that, we need to take it serious. And then mm-hmm. through the investigation, we determine whether or not it is a faulty claim or it's a legitimate claim. But would you but, send every single person to the counselor? Because that's kind of like the back and forth that if a kid that's is, happening is, you know, it's like, well, on one hand, like... I, if I take everything, well, you're going to go to the counselor. Then what if she reports that every single day for the next three weeks? So I think I think it's about having a serious conversation with her and letting her know the legitimacy and the impact of mm-hmm. these type of claims. Mm-hmm. If she still says that it's taking place and you do a thorough investigation to figure out where where it's happening and why it's happening, that sort of thing, and then you handle it from there. But if without that investigation, then you are determining whether or not your claim is justified or, or worthy of me giving it any additional attention. I think anytime someone comes forward, we need to give it due attention to make sure that it is a justified claim or it's not. And if it's not, then we have a conversation around the impact of making those type of claims toward people. I guess I'm kind of like 
when I say, is it in my place to decide whether or not it is or is not harassment, I'm thinking like in really legitimate, not legitimate, I'm thinking in um, uh, like hyper anecdotal terms where it's like if her problem ended up being she's in line and someone's given her a weird look and that's why she can't come into the room, is that weird look harassment? To which I could say, well, women get ogled. I've been ogled on yeah. a train before, and that's well, can I just, can I just say what the you conversation know? you guys are having, what you're describing, like the, the he said, she said, murky, gray area mm-hmm. nature. I mean, I mean, almost like parrots and mirrors, like things that you're reading in the newspaper exactly. about powerful men and women who have like come into their orbit and, and now are claiming and, and making allegations. I mean, it just it, it's striking to me that that you're the teachers, you're, you're as teachers, you're starting to see these types of scenarios, anecdotes play out in the schoolhouse, um, certainly on a much minor, le- you know, on a much minor level, but I don't know, that's kind of, the, that's kind the of frightening. The opportunity, though, and especially in fifth grade, and it's going to be different in middle school, it's going to be different in, at a secondary level, but the opportunity in fifth grade is you, you can teach it now. So, right. yes, the, the student goes to the counselor every time, and if it's every day for three weeks, it's every day. But what happens in those three weeks is you've talked with parents, you've mm-hmm. talked with other teachers, you've had these lessons in class now. Mm-hmm. So you've taken this opportunity, it makes it a bigger conversation, you have addressed it from every possible angle, you have taught your class what is acceptable behavior. Whether or not it's a legitimate complaint or not, mm-hmm. you've gotten to have that lesson taught mm-hmm. many, many, many times. And then, yes, if it's a weird look in line, if you permit it, you're promoting it. And so that you address every single time. And that's, yes, it's the commitment you make to your classroom, and it's going to take some time off of math, but you make that commitment. Mm-hmm. It's a good place to end. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kaufman.org or on Twitter at KaufmanFDN. Regular listeners of No Wrong Answers know that since we began earlier this year, a theme that has come up often, whether it's been planned or bubbles up organically in conversation, is the so-called Trump effect. In fact, our very first episode was taped with this group on the weekend after Trump's inauguration. That term, Trump effect, was first coined by the Southern Poverty Law Center during the 2016 campaign. The idea was that the negative, often hateful, even bigoted and downright racist rhetoric of the campaign of Donald Trump was having a twofold effect on schools. Number one, it was increasing reported levels of anxiety and fear among students, especially students from marginalized groups. Secondly, it was emboldening other students to express views and opinions in school that may have previously been seen as out of bounds. That now mirrored the rhetoric of Trump's campaign. The SBLC's survey, as instructive and widely disseminated as it was, did have flaws, namely it relied on self-reporting and anecdotal evidence. Well, that was then, and this is now a new more scientifically rigorous survey conducted by UCLA polled a nationally representative sample of more than 1,500 teachers recently. And in its results, you can see the shadows of the SPLC's original Trump effect conclusions. Are students feeling more anxious and scared? Yes, at least some students are. 79% of teachers surveyed reported that students have expressed concerns for their well-being or the well-being of their families because of what is in the news. 
Most consistently cited by the teachers in this survey are LGBT issues, Trump's travel ban, and the future of the Affordable Care Act as sparking fears among students. Overall, 51% of teachers reported more students experiencing, quote, high levels of stress and anxiety. Are other students feeling more emboldened to say hurtful things in school or act out? Possibly, though the evidence is maybe not as strong. 27% of teachers reported an increase in students making derogatory remarks about other groups during class discussions. This includes sexist as well as racist and anti-Muslim comments. It's interesting to note, as the authors of the survey do, that the percentage goes up for teachers who teach in majority white schools. Much has been made recently of the apparent cracks growing in the Republican Party now ruled by President Trump. Former President George W. Bush gave a speech recently in which he never named Trump, but was seen as widely condemning many of Trump's policies and actions. In that speech, Bush said this, quote, bullying and prejudice in our public life sets a national tone, provides permission for cruelty and bigotry, and compromises the moral education of children. The only way to pass along civic values is to first live up to them, end quote. We've had this conversation before, so I don't want to rehash territory we've already gone over. In fact, just last week, we got into a similar topic about teachers who may express reprehensible views in class and whether they should ever be given teaching jobs. But I want to press this conversation towards the student side. I want to get towards naming practical, implementable solutions to confronting the types of behaviors that are cataloged in this recent UCLA survey and were documented last year by the SPLC, namely uh, hurtful, derogatory, even racist views and actions on the parts of students, uh, seemingly, as these surveys would suggest, emboldened by the Trump administration. Do you see solutions to that? If students are expressing racist views in school, wherever they come from, but they're making other students nervous and anxious and fearful. Are there solutions to that? When those comments are made, we no longer are, I don't think we can any longer say that's not okay. We're not going to hurt somebody's feelings that way. We're not going to come down on the um, etiquette side. We're not going to come down on we need to be tolerant side. We need to come down on this is the danger in what you just said. This is the history of comments similar to that. This is a potential implication of something I, you just said. I'll have a follow-up to that, but I want to get yeah. uh, Bakari and, and Maddie's thoughts. I honestly you. think it's just a matter of confronting them with, fa- with facts. I think in one of the articles it talked about a quote from a kid who said that all the uh, brown people h- here were dumb before Columbus came. Oh, those, those, yeah, like yeah, that. So that, yeah, there was an anecdote from the, the UCLA survey. And I think it's just about, a matter of confronting yeah. with facts. Like, show, show this kid what Native Americans were doing prior to Columbus's arrival, like show that they had an entire society um, cultivated before Columbus even came over. And I think just confronting them with facts of history that is not always rooted in this white centralized narrative begins to shift their perspective. That begins to shift their understanding, because if we're only taught one thing one way, that's what they're always going to continue to spew. Maddie. Um, Yes and yes. Also, adopting the idea that free speech exists, but your free speech has consequences. One thing that I'm doing to bring conversations of race into my classroom is for my read aloud this semester, I chose the book Holes because it talks about the characters in the book and what race they are and how they interact with each other. And there's a flashback part of that story that deals with one of the characters being killed because he's black. I'm reading a portion of the book and part of what's written is, well, Sam was black and kissing Kate Barlow is white. And so Sam was killed. And they're all like, <gasps> and so I call them to the carpet after we read the passages that have to do with race. 
one student shared, well, my grandpa was a slave owner, but he was one of the nice ones because he let his slaves be educated. Like my great, great, great grandpa. This is one of your students saying this. One of my, yes. So we're all sitting on the carpet and that happened. And I heard that and I went, what do we think about that? And a bunch of the other students questioned what he said. That was just an opportunity for us to again say, but like slavery is bad. Like there, there was no such thing as a nice slave owner. Right. That's not, those two things aren't um, intersectional. Like you can't, you can't say, well, it is okay to have slaves because I let my slaves be educated. If you picked up a fifth grade history book, everything is alluded to. There's nothing in there that explicitly says the slave owners were white and that is a bad thing. Like there, there's no book that explicitly really condemns those actions of the people in the society at that time. And the people who were the slave owners were white. So, I mean, when you think about why does white fragility still even exist, it's like no one's really stood up and said – that's, because, that's not okay. The, no one stood fifth up graders, and said there's no such thing as a, as a good slave Well, owner. and when like, they do, then white people feel discriminated against that's because the white, their yeah. history and their, their superiority is being mm-hmm. questioned, and now it becomes discrimination. Right. Uh, pardon me. The situation you're describing almost sounds harder to deal with than if a kid is just saying a racially derogatory remark in class intentionally. Right. I mean, he was very open. I mean, he just – his hand popped right up, and he was like, well – so can we add that That's to the list of things that will paralyze you <laughs> if you think of the bigger implications of coming? Because it is. It, it's a cultural ignorance. It's a different conversation than so, saying something provocative or saying something uh, and, you know, antagonistic against another group. I mean, it's a different – that's a different lesson than well, the kid who's repeating something they saw on Facebook or, or something they saw on or something media. Their, or something that their family's told Or about. something that the family has. Yeah, has I kind of want to get past like this idea of mm-hmm. the racist comments that people make are hurtful. Yes, they are. But like if we think – if we stop as a society and think that's the real danger is hurt feelings, I think that we're missing a huge point, you know, because – even though my student, his intention was not to hurt feelings, the fact that that that's his narrative of our history really enables him to excuse mm-hmm. politicians mm-hmm. who still mm-hmm. say that narrative is true. So, I mean, I don't in, – in no way, shape, or form do I want it to be like a um, – whenever a – black individual hears a racist comment, like, their feelings are hurt. It, like, of course, yes, I can't imagine that. I can't put myself because that's not my own narrative. However, if that's the only repercussion we think happens from students leaving school and being allowed to say racist thing after racist thing, I mean, I I don't know. I, The fact mm-hmm. that it's those racial comments allow him to vote a certain way and to think politically a certain way. Uh, we'll move on to our last topic. It's been a while, but it's back, and in a big way, the Betsy Breakdown. Take it away, Matt. Uh, I've got to say, Secretary DeVos has been uh, rather low-key in recent weeks. She and her department have not made much national news to speak of, but... The U.S. Department of Education has uh, rolled back 72 policy guidelines for special education. Uh, And this is a big deal. It was kind of overlooked when it happened about a week ago, and uh, we want to talk about it now as part of the Betsy Breakdown. These are guidelines that 
At least as Pacific Standard Magazine says, quote, clarify how existing federal disability rights law applies to school districts around the country. One of the jobs historically of the DOE is to help educators and districts understand the sometimes arcane minutiae of education law by issuing clarifying guidelines like these in, quote, clear non-legal language that lay out precisely what rights students have and what procedures should be followed. Otherwise, bad things can happen. Districts or schools, either through cynical manipulation or benign ignorance, may more easily deny disability services to students if they don't have clear guidance. Note what was uncovered in Chicago recently by public radio station WBEZ. Their reporting revealed a complicated bureaucratic infrastructure that largely created obstacles for parents getting their children special education services. Or take the story from Texas we covered earlier this year, first investigated by the Houston Chronicles, featured in an episode of No Wrong Answers. That state arbitrarily set a cap on the percentage of students who could receive special ed services, denying hundreds of thousands of students services they otherwise would have been obligated to receive. Many education advocates readily admit that sometimes laws and rules change or become outdated and guidelines need to be updated or in some cases retired. But the scope and speed of what DeVos's Education Department has done here in tossing out 72 guidelines en masse with little public discussion or explanation has shocked many disability rights experts. Let's just highlight a couple of guidelines. One that has been rescinded was issued in 2012 that reminded schools that federal law requiring students with disabilities be put in the least restrictive environment, that's often a mainstream classroom, that that law also applied to preschoolers. So schools couldn't just put preschoolers with disabilities in mainstream preschool settings just because it wouldn't be inconvenient or harder on the instructor. Uh, Another guideline that was rescinded, an 18-page Q&A issued in 2009 that laid out what due process rights students and families had if they wanted to lodge complaints about the services they were receiving, including this question, may a parent file a due process complaint because their child's teacher is not highly qualified. I think if I were a parent or principal, I'd want to know the answer to that question on that guideline. To be clear, the DOE says all the stricken guidelines are unnecessary and it uh, eases the regulatory burden. But critics like University of Wisconsin-Madison professor Don Moynihan writing on Twitter says removing these guidelines will give states, quote, de facto discretion to deny services to students. So this is the lone topic for the Betsy Breakdown this week. I just wanted to... Um, kind of get your reactions and, and, and possibly if we could maybe probe the potential effects of this. There's still kind of looking at what this may do. Again, there were 72, so even uh, education policy experts weren't quite clear on what this might do. And I'm going to throw it straight down to Rebecca because you teach special ed, number one, and then number two, you are a union representative. So I think you might have the, the policy goggles on for this. Here's Here's how I see it. And I am not a special education teacher, but my daily life that. is affected enormously because I, my partner, I, we are right. a team and I do regular right. education. My partner does the special right. education piece and the implicate. I mean, we are together um, in lockstep about that. Individuals with Disabilities Education Act was passed in 1975 and it was reauthorized under George W. Bush in 2004. That law has not been reauthorized or revisited since 2004. The only thing that districts and teachers have to lean on for policy, for questions, for special situations that have come up since 2004 are these guidelines, these policy statements, these dear colleague letters. When something like due process or least restrictive environment, which has become just part of the vocabulary of special education, when we needed guidance on what was fair, what was best for students, we would look to these guidelines. Yes, they're arcane because the law hasn't been updated. But 
um, it is foundational to what SPED, what special education is when you look at least restrictive, when you look at the parents and the students' rights under due process. So with, with these gone um, and having them swept away without transparency, without comment, without a consideration of the implications of what this is, it now does open up this, this void of inconsistency. What one student will get in one state is going to be different potentially what they get in another state from district to district. What, and because special education, unfortunately, in the reality that we live in, is expensive. It's money. It's a, it's a financial impact on districts. And you get regulations about how many you can have, what it costs to place students outside your district for services. You have to hire specialized teachers for what they need. It's an expensive proposition for these most. And as we I mean, as we've seen by the examples I gave, I mean districts exactly. have the have the incentive to to not provide the services because of of the finances involved. If there are regulations no longer in place, if there are goalposts, if there are lanes that are now not clearly defined, that allows for flexibility, that allows for potentially our most vulnerable population of students not receiving the highest and to be, quality care that they need. And to be clear, there are there are more guidelines, a lot more guidelines there, there than the 72 that were. There is more complex yeah, okay. than special education law and regulation. There are volumes. Right, right. But some of these, and you picked the right ones, due process, least restrictive, those are the foundational ones. They didn't go after the fringe here. This is... That is substance. You seem pretty in the weeds on this because of your job, because of your role. I wonder for, um, you know, Kari, who's an administrator, for Maddie, who's a, a regular classroom teacher. Um, how should how should people in those roles, and I ask all three of you, I guess, like how should you be um, reacting to this news and kind of consuming this news about these guidelines being rescinded? Like, what what do you what do you feel is your your responsibility to know? Um, as an administrator, I think that it's important that I obviously stay abreast of these type of changes and that I can speak to those when parents have questions or concerns. For me, I think as my own personal interpretation of these type of moves that DeVos continues to make is that she, what she's doing is leaving, again, another um, generally underserved population more vulnerable to continue to be underserved. And it sounds like she's actually stripping some of the tools for parents to advocate for their students. And when when you are removing clarifications to rules and clarifications to policies um, that parents can rely on to be better advocates for their students, and now they don't have that anymore. So I think it's it continues to show that she's not doing what's in the best interest of public education in America. Um, but particularly, I think as an administrator, it's important for me to stay abreast of those type of things so that I can um, build a bridge for our parents or for our teachers who are not in the know. Um, and I think that our district, I know, well, my district, I know, does an, an effective job of making sure that we do. So we have monthly trainings around any major um, policy shifts and that sort of thing. So we will definitely stay um, in the loop as so that we can best serve all of our students. Yeah, Maddie, what are you thinking? That sounds nice. I like the monthly policy meeting changes. The way that, like, when I heard that news story, I thought, I need to go talk to my special education mm -hmm. department, and I'm very concerned because this is following the pattern of the systematic taking away mm -hmm. of services. That's how I reacted as a gen ed teacher to the department's decisions. 
every all of, I'm I'm concerned because I'm seeing a very clear consistent pattern of we are going to systematically methodically take away services, rights, protections, norms. It's that systematic breakdown. Betsy breakdown. That was <laughs> You see, took the words right out of my mouth, Maddie. I was about ready to wrap it, it up. It makes me angry when I use that. <laughs> well, you guys have survived another Betsy breakdown. Have First we, though? Oh, yeah. Have, you? have huh? we? You're still here. <laughs> so is she. <laughs> Stay tuned. We are going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours. Giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days. Maddie, what are your kids into? Uh, Physics phenomenons. When we were out on the playground the other day, you know those those spinny, the, the twirly things? I'm trying to make it in 30 seconds because mine are notoriously <laughs> no, 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 long and complicated. Yes. Tether balls? Fifth graders like, are into weird things. Like dust devils. No. Uh, no. Spinner? Yeah, spinners. Like fidget spinners. No. Imagine you're on the imagine you're on a swing and that you you spin oh, it up a whole playground. bunch and then you untwist. Yeah. Okay. okay. With me? Okay, so you know when you're untwisting and when you stick your legs out and you lean back, you slow down. And then when you contract, your spinning speeds up because of gravity and G force and physics. So you say your kids this week were really I into that. I taught them how to do yeah. it, and it was really fun. Teaching physics in a fun 30 way. 30 seconds. Made yeah. it. Oh, totally stuck on yeah. the playground rule. <laughs> Rebecca, what are your kids into? I'm still stuck in Halloween Vortex. I know I've used this one before, but Halloween has still not come and gone. It's just escalating. We are taping it's two days before Halloween. Yeah. Of course it hasn't come and gone. But it's been going on for <laughs> weeks. And even the kids are kind of dragging their feet about it now because Trunk or Treats started weeks ago. Oh, yeah, we went to Trunk or Treat again at the car So they're bored with Halloween. It's become this festival, this month-long festival. But Halloween itself, uh, the day of this taping is two days it's away. Two you days are really away. excited about it. And then there will it. be several days of recovery. <laughs> it just, it's in with So still into Halloween. Bakari, what are your kids into? Um, this week, my kids are into a game called Necking. Um, it's the... It is. So, like, they are challenged one another to do something. If they get, don't get the challenge, they get slapped on the back of their neck, and it's like, that's why it's called necking. Um, and so, Different version from what Max used to, yeah, apparently, based uh, on our looks. And so they'll slap you on the back of your neck, and if they actually, or they ask a question, they get the question wrong, they figure out the answer, and they can ask for their neck back, and they get to slap you back. Oh, so, so like, <laughs> what was the, like, give me an example of a question that's asked, um, if you know. I don't know any questions off the top. I just... I ran into a student who was asking for his neck back, and I asked him what what was going on. It's like, what do you mean, get your neck back? And he explained to me that. Yeah. So it almost sounds like a like a truth or dare. Yeah, it's kind of like a kind of truth. Thing. Yeah, like either definitely. either do this or get your neck slapped, or answer the question wrong and get your neck slapped. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks to our teachers this week, Maddie Burkemper, Rebecca McIntosh, and Bakari Uku. Thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thanks to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where. We tape. I'm Kyle Palmer. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers.